welcome to the first ever episode of the My Journey podcast presented by me, Matt Johnson. This time I'm going to be chatting to Drew Povey. Um, I drove over to Warrington to meet him at a hotel at the beginning of January. We were trying to find a quiet corner of the cafe bar area, but it just wasn't happening for us. And Drew was fantastic. He pulled a few strings and secured us a conference room free of charge. So a big thank you to him for that and a big thanks for being part of the podcast I think the best thing to do now is just to get straight into it. So here it is, the first ever episode of the My Journey podcast with Drew Povey. Today I'm speaking to one of the nation's favourite head teachers, star of Educating Manchester, Drew Povey. How are you? I'm not bad, thanks, Matt. How are you? Yes, I'm very well, thank you. So for people who possibly didn't catch the Educating series, just want to briefly explain who you are. Yeah, so um, I was the was the head teacher of Harrogate School in Salford, Greater Manchester, and that was part of the educating series. Um, brilliant school uh, that did some quite great things. So to be part of that was fantastic. If people haven't seen it, uh, they can still download that on four on demand, which will boost our figures. So we're always grateful for that. Matt. Good little plug, yeah. yeah, that's yeah. It. So as a former head teacher and having been involved in the education system for a number of years. I just wanted to touch upon that first, then we'll start to talk about your career uh, later on, but um, I'm hoping listening we've got students, uh, parents, possibly even teachers. So if there was a student today saying, I want to get the most out of my education experience, what would your top tips be to them? Yeah, I mean, it's the education system's changed. You know, you only have to open a newspaper or turn on the TV and at some point in the last six months, we'll have heard a lot about education. Um, and it has changed and therefore, you know, the experience of school has changed as well. And it's always about dealing with what you're dealing with at the moment. You know, there's been lots of debate about money in schools and whether the schools are getting enough money. But at the end of the day, people will make it work. And the teachers and the leaders in the school and the students and the parents will all pull together and make it work. So I don't think it's easy, um, but it's also not impossible either. And because things have changed, we have to find a different way of doing things. And one of the things I would say I think works well uh, for students in school at the moment and and for teachers to kind of use this as a lever with, with students is to really explore what it is the students want to do because one of the concerns you can have is when you've got all this work coming your way you know and you'll I read an article a few weeks ago I think it was either the Guardian or the Times that was saying you know to get the most out of GCSEs at the moment students need to be doing up to eight hours revision a day and I was thinking well they're in school six hours and hopefully at some point they're going to sleep so I'm not quite sure where this eight hours is going to come from and I think there can be a whole host of concerns and worries and anxieties that come with this um, challenging education system uh, and the amount of exams young people are doing is literally going through the roof but with that you know with this change the education system means that we have to adapt the way that we are around the system and I think always reminding kids about why it is they're doing a certain subject you know that kind of core purpose behind why they want to do anything hopefully by talking about the purpose that kind of alleviates the passion that young people will have for a subject but I think teachers are very very good at being salespeople. You know, I've observed that many lessons and been part of that many lessons thinking, you know, these people could literally sell anything to anyone at any time because, you know, they are putting across something that the young people might not 
find particularly interesting. It might not be a particularly sexy subject, but they're trying to show them the worth and the benefit of learning that. And I think exploring why something should be learned as well as why it's important to that young person in their learning journey or what they might want to do in their future is crucial. So I think that basis... Uh, is important. The other side of that, I think we've got to do a lot more. Um, As a parent myself, I've got uh, a son who's taking his GCSEs at the moment. And I think we've got to be really acutely aware as education professionals, as parents and the students themselves of making sure that they look after themselves during this significant time of challenge because there are lots of exams and there are lots of pressures and the expectations are growing and that's you know the the, the same in in probably most sectors in most parts of of the world and it's actually saying well how can we look after these people that are going to be having these pressure points i've got a a son coming up and he's doing his sats uh his year six sats and again it's how can we try and alleviate the pressure and give young people time to think and have fun and you know be creative at the same time as having to do these significant pieces of work that are going to give them the ticket to the next stage of their life. I was at an event um, at my old school and I overheard a conversation between a student and a guy who was in industry and he was saying I want to this is what I want to be when I'm older and the guy's response was back in my day this is what you have to do. And I remember sitting there thinking, but it's not in your day anymore. There's yeah. so many different routes. Like even when I was at six months, like I knew one or two people that went down the apprenticeships route and yeah. things like that. And we were just all focused on university. That's where we were going. That's what we had to do. And like you say, it's about that time outside of the classroom as well, like exploring what you want to do, I think is a huge part of it. It is, and there are so many paths now, and, and it's not like it was when I was coming out of school where people were saying, well, what kind of job do you want to do? And then presume that you would go into that job and stay in that job and get a pension from that job and retire from that job and live life happily ever after. That's not the way life is. You know, there's lots of stats out there. A great video called Shift Happens where it talks about the fact that there's not as many jobs now that have been created that the young people at school will actually be carrying out you know and we've got to be saying well the world of work is changing rapidly I don't think we can perhaps fix like we used to do and go this is the path I'm going down and that is the only path that I can then go down I think there's so many different channels so many different options and it's giving young people time to think and to explore those rather than the old adage which was well you go to university well you go to university and there's nothing else that's kind of moved on now you know and there's there's lots of different ways to to achieve and i think that's a good thing too yeah i was also reading an article uh, yesterday that said um that the gaming industry is now bigger than music and video combined is it really and again that's one of those things where as parents or maybe teachers will think if a child is really gifted at music that music school is a viable option but when i shared this article i thought the question will we have gaming schools will we have it's a great point you know like well i mean my my lads spend all the time gaming Fortnite. Fortnite. uh i I can't do them and they'll point that out to me but i know of the Fortnite dancers yeah Uh, i'm I'm okay with those kind of things uh you know the various games that they play and and you know fifa is a is a big one in our house too coming from a house of you know the, the three three lads 
the gaming industry is a big part of their lives and uh, yeah I'm, I'm not surprised actually they probably listen less to music and it's more YouTube and it's more gaming so how did you find school life then when you were growing up well I had a uh, an interesting uh, experience of school is probably the best way to put it. I think people, when they realise you've been a head teacher, think that you were like, I suppose most head teachers were you know, reasonably well behaved at school and, and very diligent and hard working um, and all of the bits that you would think go with somebody who goes into teaching and then becomes a head teacher. But that certainly wasn't the case for me. Um, I found primary school really difficult. Uh, for a number of reasons, um, I'm certainly not blaming my teachers for that. Um, I was probably the big, the biggest issue at primary school, even though I'm quite quick to tell people I was just misunderstood. Um, but it, you know, I didn't find it easy at primary school, um, and I spent a lot of time outside the head teacher's office and finding myself in trouble and getting sent out of lessons and then missing learning. And I kind of understood that cycle of, well, actually, if I want to get out of the lesson, I can. But then trying to play catch up afterwards was becoming more and more difficult. And I remember doing my old Cheshire test, which were what the SATs are now. And I think it was quite alarming, the, the scores I got, um, particularly when I had an older brother who was uh, very, very clever. So uh, primary school wasn't great, uh, but I, I always enjoyed playing sport. And I started playing rugby at the age of 11, um, which was brilliant for me because it gave me some real discipline. I haven't been a footballer before that, and I love football. Um, I'm an Everton fan. Some people say I'm not supporting football there because that's not what Everton do. And in some weeks I agree with them, but uh, I'm, a, I'm a football fan uh, for my sins with Everton. But I started playing rugby. And the discipline that I got from rugby was, was really good for me. Um, I had this brilliant uh, rugby coach by a guy called Mr Harrison and I was fortunate to get into the town team and you would turn up with your kit packed with your boots clean with your underpants rolled up in your towel with uh, you know everything that you needed in your bag in the right place with your school uniform on and it was that level of discipline that I really started to enjoy at the same time my parents bought me a dog which might sound um, slightly off the scale, but that worked too. I'd always wanted a dog and they were like, well, you know, if we get you a dog, you're going to have to look after this dog and you're going to have to discipline the dog. So there were a couple of things that happened um, which really made me take a bit more responsibility for my life. Um, and when I went to secondary school, that started to kick in a little bit more. I could still find myself in trouble occasionally, um, but most of the time I was starting to kind of get my head down. I was still playing my rugby. We still had the dog. And then as I went through school, uh, I remember coming up to year nine. Uh, there was the third year back then. So I'm showing my age. Uh, for people who listen to the podcast who don't know what third year is, uh, that's year, year nine now. And I remember it being options evening. And I remember thinking to myself, well, what do I take? And I had a really simplistic approach to it, which links to what I was saying earlier. I just thought, well, which subjects do I like? So uh, I was always loved PE because it was an opportunity to play sport. And I found that I could play nearly all sports apart from golf, which is a, an, another story in itself. Uh, but yeah, I enjoyed that. And I, funnily enough, I enjoyed RE. Okay. And I found I could really understand you know different views different world religions I love philosophy I love ethics I love those those kind of uh, 
uh, areas where you could debate. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to do RE and PE to the amusement of many of my friends who were, you know, what are you going to do when you're older with that? Become a rugby playing monk? Or, <laughs> and, and it was, well, no, actually, I, I, I like this subject, so I don't know what I'm going to do with them. So I worked really hard at my GCSEs, and that was the time when I kind of understood that the discipline I'd got from rugby that had helped me be a success and from looking after this dog that was like literally the world to me if I started to apply that discipline that kind of level of well you know I needed to get up in the morning and my rugby coach would say you need to be watching videos Drew because you've not grown up with rugby so I'll be watching videos in the morning and I was kind of working harder than the other players at at, at understanding the game I thought I wonder what'll happen if I did that with my GCSEs so I started to work really hard and I've never been the brightest or the best at anything Um, but what I've did have the ability to do was work hard. So um, I was working hard on my GCSEs and I'll never forget in year, the fifth year, year 11 that is now, um, we went to like a careers evening and I remember my parents came with me and we went round all the various things and we explored the things that people were doing and it was back at the time you were saying a moment ago where university, university, university and I was like well I'd quite like to go and do A-levels and they were like yeah that's kind of great Drew but let's have a backup plan in case that doesn't work out for you and I you know as a parent now myself I understood exactly why the teachers were doing that and my parents were but I thought no I reckon I can have a crack at this so I got uh, my GCSEs, I didn't do brilliantly in them, but I you know, got a couple of A's, which was you know, in, in P and RE, which I was you know, extremely proud of um, to this day. And then uh, got enough of my other subjects to go and do A-levels. Now they were really hard, and when I was choosing my A-levels, I thought, well, what do I do? P and RE. Yeah. Um, and managed to get through my A-levels, and then eventually thought, you know what, I've not done great in my A-levels, but... I'm going to go to university. Mm-hmm. And when I was looking at university, I thought, what do I do? Went back to what I did in year nine, which was PNRE. Uh, so I went to university. Actually, it was sports science, PE, theology, philosophy, and RE all rolled into one. Uh, so that's what I ended up doing at university. So that's really my kind of school experience um, and what, what landed me into becoming a teacher and as you say like people were saying what are you going to do with this when you're old I'm assuming you didn't have any plan for what this was leading to or did it start to become clear at any point well it, it was interesting I saw um, an, an old teacher of mine about probably 10 years ago and they said I knew you'd be a teacher because when you were three years old and somebody said what do you want to be when you're older we had to draw a picture, everybody did one, me being the awkward one did two, and I did a teacher and I did a rugby player. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting that I ended up being a yeah. you know, a, a teacher at the end of it. Um, and the subject I actually was my major subject for teaching, which was RE, which I didn't see coming and I don't think anybody else did either. <laughs> so what was the drive behind you? Um, you said you just decided you wanted to work hard. Was it for the grades or was it personal pride or was there anything in particular that inspired you to suddenly knuckle down? Yeah, I think I like um, to prove people wrong. Okay. I've always liked to do that. There's a side of me that goes, well, people don't expect you to do it. Well, you know, what would happen if I did? And I always, you know, have believed that if you are willing to put the effort in, you can do it. And because I'd seen I'd had success in other parts of my life, it's a bit like anything. You you learn something, don't you? And you think, I wonder if that applies 
over there somewhere. So I kind of learned this stuff about discipline, hard work and effort, and then started to apply it elsewhere. I suppose the best example I can give you of that is, um, which always meant a lot to me when I heard the story, was the hare and the tortoise. Okay. You know, because you've got this, you know, the hare that is absolutely brilliant and whiz-bang, and that was never going to be me. But I remember hearing that story and thinking, well, actually, I've not got natural giftedness in in maybe anything but what I have got the ability to do is outwork other people and then I was very interested in this and then I heard um, an interview uh, probably eight nine years ago with Will Smith saying about you know I'm going to get on a treadmill and there might be somebody can get on the treadmill next to me and they might you know be better at whatever than me but I will not get off that treadmill I will outwork the other person and I think there's a lot more to be said to that um, than actually people realize and I think we almost get obsessed with the specialness of talent. I think we get excited by the mystique and the magic that someone's got something that perhaps we haven't, when what you don't see are the hundreds or thousands of hours that are lying beneath what has taken that person to what they're currently doing now. It's a bit like the iceberg we talk about, don't yeah. we? You know, you see 10% of an iceberg. Well, I think that's success. You know, you've got this massive amount underneath. And the real beauty of that for me, for any student or any parent talking to a student or any teacher talking to a group of kids or for any individual in any part of their life, we can all put more effort in. We can all work harder. At any point, you know, we can put that effort in. That's within the grasp of anyone. We're not asking someone to be Einstein. We're not asking someone to be the next Van Gogh. But we are saying if you work at something, you can become the best version of you. And that for me is a powerful message. And once a young person grasps that, it's very powerful. But I do have to say, in the other sectors I've always worked in, because as long as I've been in education, I've worked in elite sport. And I noticed this exactly the same in elite sport. The superstars we see, you know, at the weekends on football pitches and hockey pitches and netball courts and rugby pitches across the world or on the golf course, we tend to think this person's completely out of touch from what we could do. What we are probably dealing with is somebody who's put hours and hours and hours of work into their craft and therefore that's put them in the position where they are successful. It, there's a thing about 10,000 hours to yeah. become a specialist at something and I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier about finding out what the child's interested in and making them realise why they're doing it like if you're going to spend 10,000 hours doing a particular activity you've got to be interested in it you have yeah, yeah. and I, I think um, I mean that research originally comes from a guy called Anders Ericsson um, and then it's been written about popularised by Malcolm Gladwell um, in the book Outliers and Matthew Syed wrote about it in Bounce as well um, some people are trying to argue against the 10,000 hour rule but I think the basic common sense idea behind it is if you're willing to put the work in you will get the outcomes because you will see the fruits of your labour uh, Doug Lemoff wrote a really good book actually called um, Practice Perfect and the one bit that people forget to talk about in the 10,000 hour rule is it has to be what he calls deliberate practice, or you have to practice it in the right way. So I mentioned golf earlier and the fact that me and golf don't get on particularly well. You could put me on the golf course for hundreds of thousands of hours, God permitting I live that long, and you will not see me get any better unless I've got somebody that can help me practice. Yes. 
in in the right way so i think there's you've got to have the support you know kids can't lock themselves in a room and just pick up a textbook and read and read and read they have to be given the guidance and they have to have the right support to put those you know that hard effort that that hard work has to go into a deliberate practice framework if it does amazing things can happen how did you find your time at university then well i was um probably again a bit of an outlier at university to nick the phrase of of malcolm gladwell Um, i was never the brightest and at this point in my life now i had absolutely locked in on the idea of i can outwork you i'm not going to be as clever as you i won't be as good at you at most things but i can outwork you and i will do potentially what you won't therefore i can stay at university because i think people were surprised i went to uni Um, they really were and I nearly didn't go because there was talk of a job that I could have got Um, but I did go to university and when I got there I thought I'm going to have to outwork people because I went to Chester University which was a a, a really good sports university at the time it was smaller than your Loughborough's and and you you know some of your other uh, big sports universities but it was doing very well and I thought I'm really fortunate to be here and I knew I wanted to get through and I knew it was important to me and I was studying subjects that I loved they had the passion behind it and I could see the purpose behind it and those those two P's I think are, are always important for anybody doing a job or any kid in a school they've got to have, you know see the purpose and then get the passion for it and because of that I decided to live at home which was uh, quite a call. It was financial reasons as well. It was very useful. But I thought, well, I can live at home because I can do the university thing and stay over because I was going to play for the rugby team, uh, the rugby league team there. And we, we, did, we did really well. And I met some great friends uh, through the rugby league. But I knew I had to live a slightly different life to most students who you know, can spend the best part of three years hanging upside down in pubs or whatever. So what I actually did was I would um, go to university to my lectures. It seemed to be in the mornings very often. Um, and then in the afternoon when everyone was going back and playing on uh, Nintendos at the time and Bomberman was a big game, uh, either that or, you know, watching reruns of some ridiculous TV programme, eating cold baked beans or whatever <laughs> students do with spam as a side, side serving of spam. We, uh, I, I would just go to the, to the library and I thought, well, if I do a little bit every day, whilst I might not have the giftedness actually to be able to, you know, be brilliant in these subject areas if I do a bit of reading every day and make some notes on it um, and I was to do that four days a week then I will build up lots of notes lots more learning and I will again be able to apply that effort grading uh, that I kind of this effort framework that I'd got in my own head then I'll be able to get to university and I say this to so many audiences now when I'm doing my public speaking or to groups of students if it's ever in a school, or, or, or to athletes. If I can get through school and university and achieve anything, anybody can. And I'm not saying that's people go, oh, I'm sure you're very bright, and I'm not fishing for compliments, because I can't stand that. Actually, it's true, if I can, anybody can. And I, I put that effort in, and then my grades started to look up, and then in the end, you know, I was really pleased that I got a 2-1 in my degree. Um, you know, which was brilliant. I, I don't think anybody could believe I got a two on. I certainly couldn't. Um, but again, I would say down to hard work. And then you went into a teacher training program. Um, there was that 
something you were thinking about towards the end of university or did it just happen? Well, I had, but it was in the year when they weren't going to fund teacher training. Right. And I thought, I can't take any more debt on at this point. Then they funded it last minute. So I thought, well, it'd be great. I'm working in sport. I was working at Warrington Wolves at the time. doing some coaching there. I thought, I'll apply to be a PE teacher. Perfect. Applied and they were like, Drew, we'd love to take you on. You've done you know, your degree here with us, but there's no spaces. And I was like, well, what am I supposed to do? And they're like, well, you can't really go on the waiting list because there's 50 people on the waiting list and there's only 50 places. Wow. So the chance of me getting on that was pretty slim. And as I walked down the stairs, Matt, um, I saw a member of staff who taught us for philosophy, a woman called Carol Fry. And she just said, oh, what are you doing at the education section, Drew? I said, oh, I've just applied to PE teaching, but it's full. And she was said, well, have you thought of doing RE? And I thought, uh, how do I say this in a nice way? Um, you know, a facetious comment like, I don't own a tambourine or I don't wear socks under flip-flops or, or something <laughs> along those lines. Um, I, didn't, I just went, oh, yeah, probably not really for me that. Um, she said, well, if you change your mind, give me a ring. I remember going home and I, I talked to my parents about it and a couple of mates and they were like, why not? You like the subject. You imagine, you know, a young lad teaching RE. And in the end I thought, well, actually, why not? So I started to, I went across to see her, had a meeting with her and she said, if you want a place on it, I think you'd, you'd make a good RE teacher. So I actually trained as an RE teacher, which not many people know. Um, and then went into school and became an RE teacher, but I always did PE as well. So I kind of... Did both subjects. And how did you get into your behaviour management side of school? Well, I was always interested in behaviours anyway because I'd been naughty at school and I knew that it wasn't because um, I wanted to be naughty. It was because I didn't perhaps always uh, given the, the right climate to do well. Um, and, and again, I joke about being misunderstood, but I think sometimes boisterous young lads... Um, can get misunderstood as lots of different kids in schools with different you know behaviors that they exhibit can and I always thought there's a reason why everyone does everything you know I've always had a philosophy in my head that I don't think anybody comes into school and goes I really want to be bad and I know some teachers will go I've got a couple of examples in my school that that, that would probably look like they do but I don't think any of them do and you'll always find that that student will behave for a couple of teachers so it's finding out why that is. Yeah. Now, it might be the subject, more likely to be the teacher, but I think there's always, again, that underlying reason why. But I also was interested in seeing it in sport as well because I was seeing some athletes that weren't playing very well one season had come back the next season, clean their act up, maybe get them, their act together off the pitch or maybe on the pitch, but whatever, they started to perform. And I started to see, I was quite interested because I did some sports psychology, it, that would really got me interested into actually this is about how we look at people's minds and our approaches towards certain things and and about actually people's beliefs because my own upbringing taught me that I didn't have the beliefs lower down even though I had a very supportive family a lot of people would not have believed that I could have done those things but actually actually you can change that belief system and you can act in a certain way that delivers the results that that, that people you know, would desire to get as an outcome. So I found that quite interesting, the whole psychology behind behaviour, but not just behaviours in school, even though that was where I was based. 
I was seeing those key behaviours in sport as well and how those behaviours can shift and then how you could get two lads in a classroom that would be a nightmare together, separate them out and they're fine. You know, when you get two players that wouldn't do well in a team together but separate them out and they do well. So I think it was all the psychology behind why people do or don't I found interesting. So it was actually the behaviour management side of your role that led you to moving into Harrow Focus? Was it your brother that kept contacting you? Yeah. Because he was already there about how Yeah, good research. How... Yeah, this is... Have you read the book Educating Drew? I haven't. This right. is all from the uh, Tim Love Drive you can, you, can, you, can, you can buy that as well, Matt. Yeah. As well as watching Four On Demand, there's homework for I listeners was, that I they could go and buy the Educating Drew book. Um, so we did, we did that book as a fundraiser for the school. But yeah, that, that kind of journal is exactly what happened. And it was, you know, Ross was having a, a really tough time at the school. He went over there you know, being, he was being paid to train to be a teacher. So he thought all his Christmases had come at once and he thought this has got to be too good to be true. And then when he started at the school and realised it was in special measures and it was known as the worst school in the country, he realised it was too good to be true. And there was a reason why he was paid. So he'd ring me up most weeks and say, oh, it's a nightmare. And I'd say, well, you know, try this or have you thought about doing this? And because I was uh, hard work at school, you know, I understood some of this and I'd started getting into that in the school I worked at in Warrington. And then eventually I went over to see Ross at the school and then met the head teacher and he was like, there's a job to be done here. Do you fancy it? And I've never been interested in money um, or chasing positions or status or any other bits that go with it. But the, the job interested me because I was thinking, well, these kids don't come here to be naughty. These kids don't want to come to the worst school in the country. And whilst at times it might have been like a bit of a mob atmosphere, these kids want to do well. These kids want to be a success. Adults want to be a success. You know, you just have to find the key that unlocks their potential to get them to see what they can achieve and, you know, let them know that that's within touching distance as well. And I think certain areas of the of the country that might feel that they're not, supported particular people look down the nose at them um, that makes that challenge even harder because if they think oh well I only come from this area I come from this postcode then they start to believe that that's all they can be and that's just rubbish you know people can achieve great things I think you have to be careful when I say that I kind of semi wince inside because you know what I'm not suggesting is I can become a brain surgeon that's not happening and it yeah. would be a very bad idea if I did but what I am suggesting is is that people can achieve probably much higher levels than they currently are doing. And very often we beat ourselves before we begin. And very often kids, if they're in a school and special measures, that can you know give them real difficulties. And I also think for some people from some areas, they go, well, but what do you expect? I come from that area. And, you know... I really strongly believe that that's not the case and I've you know, got lots of friends and people I've met over the years that have just been truly truly incredible people and they've come from all walks of life you know so that kind of thing should not define us but again it goes back to the psychology it has a knock-on impact in that belief system that people hold and I think it's the belief system the mindset that Dr Carol Dweck talks about that we've got to really look into what was it that was inspiring you along the road while you were there was it the kids or is it the that is it an individual that you're looking at thinking this is this is the person i want to see change or yeah i mean it was 
the, the, the probably the biggest kicker I get from anything, which is the world I live in now, which is the world of leadership development. You know, it's seeing people achieve, um, and I get very very excited when I see you know those penny drop moments that's why I got into coaching when I was 15 years old because I'd love to see a team that people would write off and then I was given this team uh, once I won't say who it is in case any of the people that were in that team are listening but everybody wrote them off and said they were absolute no hopers they weren't going to win a game and um, we ended up winning the Lancashire Cup some of them will know who that is now because they'll be listening going, geez, we were in that team. But people wrote them off before the season, but I was like, no, we can do something here. If we believe enough and we work hard enough, we can do something. And then I took that into teaching and then I took that in. And I think when I see people doing well and overcoming adversity and really taking on a challenge and pushing themselves, I find that inspirational. And that's why I'm keen to learn about it. I'm keen to work with teams and observe them. So I've been really fortunate to have been inside England Rugby Union and Wales Rugby Union and, um, you know, see elite sport in a, in a number of different fields, met world champions, met, you know, some of the biggest and best athletes in the world, great business leaders. I read about this and part of teams, you know, business teams that are doing great things at the moment in, in different economy, uh, in different economies. I think, you know, seeing success and observing success not just fascinates me I'd say that I find that inspirational and trying to understand how that person has done that and nine times out of ten those people are even though they do extraordinary things they're just ordinary people so when you were at this school you obviously went from being a teacher through to head teacher how did that change come about was it just an opening of position and you thought that's the challenge I want now or yeah, I mean, I'd, I never wanted to be a head teacher. Okay. I've been quite honest about that. Um, I did it because I loved Harrop Fold. Right. And I did it because I think a lot of people thought nobody would want to do that job. So I did put my hand up to do it. Um, you know, but I was offered the job, actually offered it. And, you know, I was very clear on what grounds I'd take the job. And I'll never forget the meeting where I was offered the job um, because they said, so do you want the job? And I said, well, let me just say before I accept the job that the kind of head teacher I'll be because I will do the best thing for these kids in this community. So I suppose rather than you offering me the job, I've got to say to you, do you really want someone like me to do this job? Because, you know, I'm not a political animal and I will make mistakes and I'm no great shakes at any point. But what I will do is I will work my damnedest. I'll work every hour God sends to give these kids in this community the very best. That's what we sign up on. Let's do it. If not, I won't be remotely offended. You'll find someone better than me. And I've always maintained this too, which people think is, again, is a fishing for compliments uh, comment. I wasn't a good head teacher. I wasn't, you know, there's so many fantastic head teachers um, out there, you know, that did things so much better than I did in terms of that. What I do think I was, I think I was, you know, good for Harrop, um, but I was never going to be a great head teacher. Um, but I think I was the right person to run Harrop at the time. And if someone's listening and they're like, I want to be a head teacher, what do you think the key things are that they need to be aware of that's the difference between being a teacher or a member of the senior leadership team and being the head teacher? Like, what's the difference? Anybody that wants to be head needs to get some kind of psychological evaluation, <laughs> okay. Matt, pretty damn quickly. Uh, no, but it's, it's, you know, it, it, there's so many brilliant parts about the job. But I think, like anything, you've got to understand what it is. So 
I've had this conversation with countless adults now in the leadership world, students, back in school, athletes. You know, when people are talking about what they want to do, I say you've got to go through a three-level filter. Level number one is, do you like doing it? And that's always going to be the kind of the passion side of it. Do you love doing what you're doing? And yes, we have to do things in life we don't like. But when you're choosing what you're really going to spend a lot of time doing, do you like doing it? The second filter question is, are you good at it? Because if you watch The X Factor, we'll realize there's a lot of people that like singing, but they're not very good at it. Therefore, they're not going to make a career out of it. So let's just knock that on the head now. And thank goodness for Simon Cowell, who tells people exactly whether they can or they can't, because that kind of stops somebody, uh, you know, running up a rabbit hole or down a rabbit hole. Um, So first one is, do you like it? Second one is, are you good at it? What's interesting is we're normally good at the things we like to do. Yeah. There's normally a correlation between those two. And then the, the, the kind of the third, the third, element of that is if you like it and you're good at it could you see yourself doing it long term in the future and if you go through those three levels I think it's it's a good kind of mechanism to filter through to get to what you should be doing GCSEs now I didn't go through that exact system when I was choosing P and RE but it would it They'd have, they'd have got through that system. Do I yeah. like them? Yeah. Am I good at them? Actually, I am. Could I see myself doing them in the future? Don't know exactly what in way, but if I could be connected to that. And what's interesting now, the job I've got now is all about, you know, working on performance, which is very much sports-based. Um, it's about improving performance, which is very much, you know, many of the elements of sports science. I've got so many friends uh, who, who work in the industry of sport. But at the same time, I'm thinking a lot and being philosophical about what leadership is and what leadership isn't and how we improve leadership. So it's kind of like, even though I didn't ever think that leadership development work would be connected to PE and RE, actually, they're inextricably linked. So it it would have got through the filters of, yes, I like it. Yes, I feel I can do it. I'm good at it. And thirdly, I actually think it's something I could spend the rest of my life doing. Those three filters are important, I think. As you've said, you've been involved in um, elite sport and leadership throughout your career. I believe you did part-time alongside the teaching and things like that. Um, so what kind of roles have you had within that area? Oh, I've done all kinds. I mean, I started off as a coach um, and I love coaching because that was around, you know, the psychology, around boosting performance Um around cultures, around teams, and I've always found those things fascinating. But as my job in schools increased, I had less time to do the coaching. Now, alongside that, which is slightly left field, I've always been interested in sports nutrition and supplementation. So I've always been interested in kind of like why people take supplements and what people should be eating to get the performance levels. It was something I picked up at university. So I couldn't do the amount of coaching, but people were saying, well, actually why don't you do some nutrition and supplement stuff, which you know about? And that got me into, you know, some really big teams as well, because I understood it, because supplements were quite new 10 years ago, 12 years ago. People didn't know what they could take or couldn't take or what the hell this stuff did. They were just like, let's take it because so-and-so takes it. And I was like, well, do you know what's in it? Do you know what it does? So I was kind of interested in that. And I did that for probably about five or six years. And did some work over at Toulon in the south of France on that, and again, something with England and, and, and some other teams as well. But then um, it kind of moved over because I was talking to the coaches as I was doing 
because they knew me as a coach and then they knew me as doing the supplements and nutrition, it kind of moved on to talking about some of the psychology or the team dynamics or some of the behaviours and some of the cultural aspects. And I was interested in that because, you know, I kind of seen this stuff happening in schools and in sport and I kind of thought there's so many connections here to what a sports team does performance-wise to and what the coach is trying to do with those players to what a teacher's doing in the classroom and trying to get them to perform Mm -hmm. and trying to get them to be engaged in the training and development that goes to performing an exam or performing a piece of coursework I was like and this is the same damn job Um, and actually it's the same thing everybody's doing but nobody's connecting the dots so I started to write some models and materials that I thought would connect the dots and taking the best things I'd seen in education and people in education are doing wonderful wonderful things they just don't very often talk about them enough because they're so damn busy doing the millions and millions of things as well as the other million things that teachers do like the workload that they have is just astronomical and definitely something needs to be done about that never mind the kids but there's a lot of very good stuff happening so I started to look across the two sectors and then started to do some work with the police Um, and then some work in the NHS and I was seeing actually we're all doing the same things as leaders within these businesses Um, and then went into private businesses and was going this is now everybody's doing the same thing but no one's talking about it so I tried to connect the dots between all the sectors to say well look teachers are doing something brilliant over here and have a really good way of doing that but over over here sports doing brilliant over here business has got this taped the police do this really well and the nhs are the best at this and kind of sharing the ideas across all of the different sectors because at harrop we were in a really difficult spot and we didn't know whether it could work so i was kind of nicking ideas from everywhere it was a bit like dick turpin with a mask mask on (laughs) nicking ideas wherever i could get them from and going back to your inspiration question earlier that's what i found really inspiring i was working with a brilliant teacher or a brilliant police officer or a brilliant nurse or doctor or an athlete or a coach or um someone in a corporate boardroom going, oh my goodness, that is such a brilliant idea. Why haven't I thought about that? And then reading about it too, because I read for an hour a day. I was kind of getting all these ideas together and going, wow, there's just brilliant stuff out there. Let's share it. And how have you found it as now you've moved away from education as in like being your full-time role, now you do the um, consultancy. How have you found that move away from interacting with the kids and more with the leadership style? How's that been for you? Well, in the last couple of years at, at Harrop, um, to bring more money in, I was doing more of the leadership work with corporates down in London mainly um, and working in sport and, and the police and the NHS. So I, I was I probably I've had a phased um, finishing to, to education, but I miss it. You know, um, going into a school and talking to kids and... Um, the brilliance of kids to be quite honest because they are hilarious and what I love about kids is you know the the agenda level is very low and they're not you know they're not coming with a particular angle they're just going to tell you as it is and you know you can shape something there because they're going to be brutally honest with you uh, to the point of being offensive Uh, but that's okay because you can you can work with that and you can you can use that um, for their advantage. So I miss it. I do miss it. But I'm very privileged to be able to be still talking about the same elements of belief and learning and development that I was doing in schools 
with other sectors that have you know have had long-standing relationships with but you know schools get so many things right and so many schools get battered you know if they're a bad set of exam results comes through well okay you know the school might have had a tricky year or a tricky couple of years but what's happening in schools is incredible and you know, we all forget I forget I've got three boys who are going in and there's people stood at the front of those classrooms that are changing lives by the minute and we forget how exciting that is and that that worries me that people aren't going into teaching as much or people are getting hacked off with you know I think there's a mixture I did talk about this on the Tim Lovejoy podcast um, because we have very similar beliefs on this you know workloads a problem it is teachers are just overworked um, and some people would say underpaid as well um, which is, it then becomes difficult because you know if you've got loads of work and the money's not great that's a problem but I also think some teachers are looking at this system going what the hell is it is this preparing kids for life? And so therefore, an amalgamation of those three, I think is why people are leaving this incredible job called teaching. Obviously I've left for quite different reasons, but it's a great job and I'll always be connected to schools in some way, um, as long as schools think I'm adding value. You know, I wouldn't be there as a as a Klingon uh, just because they can't get rid of me. I'd want to be there to, to be adding value. And, you know, I'm still working with a number of school leaders and a number of um, education organisations wanting to impact on young people's lives. And, you know, that's a really exciting place to be. How do you think... Um elements such like technology are impacting teaching nowadays obviously I went to school at a time when it was no mobile phones and you you didn't even take it to school for the first few years it was only in the later years that we even thought about trying to take the phone to school now they're on every playground in every classroom and how do you think that impacts on I think it depends on the stance that the school takes I mean we were um quite heavily criticised um, on, on a number of platforms for allowing our kids to have mobile phones in school. And now some schools allow them, some schools don't. They just go, they have no place in a school setting. Um, my, my only worry about that would be, and I'm you know, not a head teacher anymore, so this is just now a personal view. It's a professional view from when I was a head teacher as well, but it's my personal view now. You know, how are kids going to learn how to use a mobile phone responsibly? Because we're all going to use them in our jobs. That's a fact. I can't think of a job where they're not going to be using mobile technology. Everybody is. So they have to learn to use it responsibly. And I think schools are very well placed to teach the kids how to use them responsibly. As a parent, I do not understand half the things. Now I'm not in education that, you know, my my. 15 year old son will have on his phone some of the apps he's got on it I don't understand it I only came across Sahara are you familiar with Sahara? No, no no well I'm au fait with it marginally and you know it's it's a complete different platform and as parents if we can't do it and I would say now as a parent I would struggle to do that who's going to do it? are they going to teach it themselves? maybe maybe are we going to wait till they go to work and have disasters at work when they're texting the mates when they know they shouldn't? You know, I'm not sure where that comes from. Now, some people will slate me and say, what about the well-being of the kids? They're constantly connected. I get that. But again, I think that is a job that we can do in schools very well to say to them, there's a time when you don't need your mobile. 
we don't need to be checking our mobile every what is it every 30 seconds or something or 20 seconds people are checking it these days or whatever the stats were in a in a recent study i think a school can do that and i think can do it well but if a school chooses not to you know i would never say well just because i think it's a good idea that should become policy I think that's where we've fallen foul in education in this country in the past. Just because one person thinks it's a good idea doesn't mean that everybody should follow suit. I think there needs to be much more autonomy given to schools. And I was glad we had the autonomy to say, you know, you can have your mobile phone, but, you know, a bit like abuse it and lose it system. If you're messing about on your mobile phone and you're, you know, you're playing, uh, what's that game with the jelly beans on it? Oh, Candy, Candy Crush. Crush. Yeah. Uh, if you're playing Candy Crush in the middle of your maths lesson, you're going to lose your mobile. Yeah. I think as well, um, if people want to go and listen to the Dear Love Joy podcast with yourself on it, it was quite telling at one point when you were saying about if you're going to accept the um, Channel 4 series coming in and people were concerned about putting the kids on TV and some of the kids were saying to you, look, we're on YouTube every night. We're putting ourselves oh. up on there. There's apps like TikTok that people... Parents probably aren't even aware of, and Never kids heard have of got. It. That's just a clock yeah, in my world. Well, they've got like hundreds of thousands of followers, and they're just putting out videos of themselves. Oh yeah, and, well we've got a lad. Yeah. We've got a well. We had a, a, there is a lad. Uh, I mean, just be careful. It sounds like he's not with us anymore. Um, there's a lad at uh, the school who will have over two million viewers. Yeah. On YouTube, well, you know. There's not many TV programs now with the way that most things are on demand that will be raising that many people watching a program at certain times of the day. So, you know, there is a very, very different way that young people approach um, media than, than, than I certainly had growing up. And I think it's literally changing by the day. And therefore, I think that it's a good thing to be celebrating uh, the right thing because I, I also get a bit I get a bit fed up on behalf of young people um, and I've said this in a number of uh, forums one of them was a, a big speech at the, the Princess Trust actually because I was saying look young people don't half get absolutely battered you know the hoodie culture they're all in gangs sex drugs rock and roll at the weekend and actually nine out of ten of them aren't doing any of that nine out of ten of them are really decent people young people that are doing the right things all the time and we did um, a social norming experiment in my first second year of headship with a really brilliant company called social sense who were based over in manchester and people thought all our kids were smoking so we said okay we're going to do a whole um kind of audit of of our year nine cohort and we did it and you know nine out of ten over nine out of 10 of our kids in year nine weren't smoking. So we then got these big banners made up with this company, with our Harrop Falls students on, got it all signed off, safeguarding all the other good bits and pieces, but put these posters up all around Walkden and people who live in the area will know it was that. And basically it said nine out of 10 kids at Harrop Falls don't smoke. Because they don't. But we're constantly kind of having a go at young people all the time. And I, I think the vast majority of young people are really decent honest, fantastic kids, and we don't celebrate that enough. We just hear the negative stories, or this kid's done this, or this kid's done that. And I think the, the one benefit of programs like educating, it dives you, gives you a deep dive into education. It allows you to see that teachers are heroes, and they damn well are, 
Um, I think it's absolutely fantastic for people to see what kids go through in today's world because, you know, school for me was a breeze compared to what a lot of kids have to do in terms of the whole, you know, social media culture. You know, life's hard for kids and I think it's good for us to see behind the eyes of actually what's happening in a school and a community. Um, I like the idea of it. I think it's, it's good to educate people rather than people going, you know, these kids... These days, you know, they don't behave themselves. It wasn't like that when I was a kid and all that kind of, those kind of comments that go with it. I don't think it's fair on them. Brilliant. Um, so we've got four final questions okay. that um, we'll be asking everyone across the podcast. So the first one is, who or what has been your biggest inspiration throughout your career? I know we've touched on it quite a bit. Yeah, I, I would say seeing people do well and trying to learn observe them, learn, ask them questions if they get the opportunity. And I think studying success, I would probably say is my biggest one. There's been so many really important mentors and coaches in my life and I've had great family members around me. Um, but I would say all of that alongside learning and observing what success actually is. And it was probably in my early 30s, I really kind of went, actually, I think I know what success is. Um, and it's different for everybody and you can learn those the codes or what the Americans refer to as the secret source of success. You know, everybody will have their own way of doing it and learning how different people have done things, I find inspiring. And then if I can help somebody with some of those ideas, be successful, well, that's kind of like, you know, all my Christmases level, come yeah. at once. It is, yeah, it's just fantastic seeing somebody succeed. And I get the same buzz as I did in my first year of coaching, as I did in my first year of teaching, as I do when I work with, you know, whoever I'm working with, whether it be elite sport or a business now. I love seeing them succeed. So the next question is, how much do you feel your personal brand has played a role in your career? So that's like, how much is you being you? influenced your career yeah i um i'm i really believe in personal brands and i i i know when you asked me that question i was thinking that's a brilliant question because most people don't touch it everybody is their own brand whether we like it or not and a really good book called brand you i don't know if you've read that it's an american book it's really good because everybody has got themselves and i think if you can see yourself as a brand in itself and how you market yourself um when i read that book i was thinking i could have really done reading this when i was 20 as opposed to 40 uh, but i thought it was brilliant and i think there's there's too many people trying to be somebody else or trying to mirror somebody else or trying to act like somebody else and all you're ever going to be is a poorer version of somebody else so um really good book called, uh, I think it's called Purple Cow by Seth Godin. Uh, says, you, have you read that? I've read a lot of Seth's stuff, yeah. So he's brilliant, Seth. Yeah. But he, he basically says, you can't become remarkable by following someone else's remarkable. You know, once someone else has done it, they've done it. That's theirs. Um, but actually, it's a really bad idea. You know, you've got to be yourself. And um, was it Oscar Wilde that said, be yourself because everybody else is taken? Right, yeah. I might, might have misquoted him there, so don't be like you know getting in touch with me on social media, <laughs> calling me a buffoon. I think I might have got that one wrong, but it's something. It's somebody. Somebody made that quote, you know, and it's. I believe that is true. Um, and when you've worked out about being yourself, then you've got to work at being your best self. Now, this is as relevant to a student in a school 
as an athlete on a sports field, to an exec in a corporate, to a police officer in the force, to a doctor or nurse in the NHS, anywhere where I've worked. When you know what you are and you realise that idea of brand you, your own personal brand, be the best version of you you possibly can. You're not in competition with Mr. and Mrs. Smith or Mr. and Mrs. Jones next door. It's about you getting better for you. And, and you, you see this in schools, for example. It's, you know, I didn't get as good at GCSEs as them, yeah, but you're not them. And you're not going to live the same life as them. So be you and then work at being the best version of you that you possibly can. I think that's probably my view on that idea of brand you. Is um, a guy called Gary Vaynerchuk. Who yeah, Gary Vaynerchuk, he's brilliant. Very business-focused, but he's always saying about self-awareness and that everyone wants to be an entrepreneur, but actually... If you recognise that you're a brilliant number two, then actually that is a better decision That's for amazing. you than being the number one in a company. Yeah, I was I was coaching a senior executive this morning and it's taken them a while, but they, they now realise they don't want to get to the top of the tree. They are so self-aware that they know where they fit within that organisation. And, you know, not everybody is capable of getting to the top of the tune. Everybody should be capable. You know, you don't have a goalkeeper playing up front. And this is where we get this really right in sport. You know, we don't have Cristiano Ronaldo playing on the bench and coming on in goals. You have him playing up front, doing what he does well. And Jim Collins has written some brilliant leadership books. Um, good to great, great by choice, how the mighty fall, built to last, four really good texts. And in there, he talks about getting the wrong people off the bus in a business or a team, get the right people on the bus. But the bit that people miss off the end is you've got to get them in the right seat. And when you know what somebody was kind of born to do and they work out what they were born to do, then you put them in that seat. That seat might change over time because, you know, things in life are dynamic. They're not static. But if you can start to get people in the right seat, that is where the magic happens. Um, so second to last question is, can you give us one tip, trick or nugget of information about your industry that everyone can use? About my industry? Yes, yeah, so within like either teaching or leadership, well... Okay, so anyone that knows me will know I do a lot of talking. Matt, you've probably worked that out over the last hour or whatever it is, or hour and a half we've been. It's coming up to an hour. Is it, is yeah, it really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> um, so I, I do a lot of talking, and a lot of people say, oh, you must get nervous. And I'm like, yeah, petrified. And people don't believe that. And I go, yeah, I'm very nervous before any talk that I do, even if it is to... Uh, a conference room of 10 people, I'm still going to get nervous. How do you deal with your nerves? Does it not make you be sick or run off or legs shaking? So I've read lots of books on public speaking on, on how to deal with nerves and be self-aware and all the other bits and pieces that go with that. I've done you know, hundreds of books now on these kind of topics. And the best tip I ever came across was this. And most people I've told it to have gone, I didn't know that. So I'm interested to see if you know this, Matt. To get rid of nerves, what you have to do is tense your stomach muscles. Did not know that. And if you keep your stomach muscles tense, it is impossible, is what I read in this book, to actually feel nerves. Now, I've field tested this, and it's absolutely true. You find your legs won't shake, but you've got to keep your stomach muscles tense. Now, I'm speaking now because I've practiced speaking with my stomach muscles tense, and you can speak fine. And once you've started your talk, you don't have to do it anymore, but it does stop you getting nerves. It just gets you over. Gets you over yeah. the gets you over the barrier. Wow, that is 
Brilliant. Uh, well, people be using that. Only, only brilliant if it works. Yeah. <laughs> if yeah. you're saying to me actually, it gave me, gave me really bad wind. Uh, then, then we might, you might, you might be writing interviews. Yeah. It? So if you see all the people stood next to the stage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It doesn't work on other parts of your Going body, so people face. are like, yeah, doing the most muscular pose, and we might have problems. Um, so next question was: Someone's looking to get into a similar career to you. What would your advice for them? If you focus on like that teacher um, side of things, what? Well, I would say it's the same for anything. Um, you know, just make sure it's really what you want to do. You know, the, whether it's the filter of do I like it? Am I good at it? Can I see myself doing it long term? You know, I think there's too many people I've met, and I'm sure you've met, that kind of are rolling their eyes on a Sunday night, or it's Monday morning blues, and all this kind of stuff. Life is too short. You know, a really good friend of mine called the Sumo Guy, Paul McGee. I don't know if you know. Yeah, you know. I know Paul. Yeah, some of his stuff as well. Yeah, he's brilliant. And but he he basically says, and I'm nicking his stuff now. So heavy quote for uh, Paul McGee on this. He says, "You you your you life is one week." And Monday is like 10 to 20 years and, and Tuesday's 20 to 30, 21 to 30 years. Uh, sorry, 11 to 20 years. And then as the week goes on, you, know, you get to the end. And if you're lucky, you get a bank holiday Monday. Life's very short. You know, if, if that's the case, I've worked this out. I'm on Friday morning at the moment and my life ends if it does end. Uh, obviously, it could end before, but, you know, on average ages, I'll be gone Sunday night. I'm on Friday morning. I think life's too short to have a job you don't want to do. So I say, enjoy it, make the most of it. Those two Ps, I think, are powerful. I would say, you know, really know the purpose behind what you want to do because I think there's real power in purpose. If you feel you're there for the right reasons and you believe in what you're doing, then that is critical. And you've got to have a passion for it. You know, if you're not interested in what you're doing at all, you know, you could find a job that you were. And that might mean retraining. It might mean having to do some hard yards somewhere. It might mean being a bit uncomfortable for a while. But you get one life and you've got to make the most of it. And I think everybody has great qualities that they can bring to the world and could bring to an area of work. Or even if it's not an area of work, an area of interest or a hobby, they just need to find out what it is. And I think passion and purpose can be good guiders to help you do that. In terms of teaching, just quickly, um, is, are there routes into teaching that involve university or is it? Yeah, there's loads yeah. now. Um, there's one called QTLS, which can allow people to become qualified teachers with experience. Um, the, so there are different routes now um, in which you can go in. It's worth exploring them all. And for some people, you know, they don't want to become a qualified teacher. They're quite happy to be unqualified or some want to be a teaching assistant. I started my career as a teaching assistant and loved that role. It was like a brilliant job. Um, everybody's different and there's so many different jobs in schools you know I've worked with people who have been dinner ladies and they have loved their job you'd see the smile on the face there's nowhere else they'd want to be and they are brilliant with the kids and they make sure the kids get fed it's not just you know putting some food on a plate they're saying how are you how's your auntie I saw her last week are you eating enough you didn't have your lunch the other day what's going on they're brilliant at the job and they take that job really seriously. People working in offices, it's the passion and the purpose behind it and not trying to be a poorer version of someone else. Just be yourself. And finally, if people want to follow you on social media, how do they do that? What's your handle? So Twitter is my uh, probably the thing I'm on most, uh, which is at Drew Povey. 
and the same on Instagram. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I think most people are on LinkedIn, but dig in and out of it. And I don't really do Facebook because kind of there's something a bit stalkery about it. I'm not quite sure about with Facebook, so I kind of give that a bit of a wide berth. But uh, Twitter and Instagram, definitely. Brilliant. Thank you very much for your time. No, thank you, Matt. I really enjoyed it. So that's the first ever episode of the My Journey podcast. I do hope you've enjoyed it. If you did, it'd be great if you could leave a review, subscribe, or even if you just share it with a friend, that would be fantastic. To keep up to date with everything I'm doing and the podcast, then follow me on social. That's at the MJ Social, and I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.